This episode of Consume This is about the sex industry. It's not overly graphic or explicit, but if you don't like sex or you don't want to hear about it, go back to our podcast feed and try another episode instead. Anyway, on with the show. Up first is Dan. I was actually on my way out of town, heading north out of Auckland. It was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision, which I think is actually quite common for customers in the industry. It's more of a short-notice thing, but I looked up, I was like, yeah, I'll go try these guys out. It was like, it's time to take the plunge. It was about midday on a weekend. I pulled up, it was in a light industrial area up in Albany, like an anonymous building with a relatively discreet sign out the front. Mustangs. No accompanying information. Relatively discreet, although, you know, I suppose you could make some educated guesses about the nature of the business from the name. Um, park around the back, uh, walk up, knock on the door, and um, there's like a, a secure reception area. There's a small sort of vestibule where you speak to the receptionist slash manager. She let me through into the into the main front room, which is like a bar, pool table, bar where you can order a drink. And the ladies who are working that day and available are hanging out. I sort of walked in and looked slightly awkward, uh, but they made it pretty easy for me. The lady at the front, the manager, was very, very considerate, very caring. She was really nice. It called me dearie, <laughs> if I recall correctly. I felt like they cared, like they were there to look after me. One of the girls approached me and said hi, and I chatted to her for a bit, and she she was my type, you know, I quite liked her. And she asked me if I wanted to book her for a session and I said, sure. Kia ora and welcome to Consume This with me, Sophie Richardson, and my co-host, John Duffy. Hello. This week, we're investigating consumer rights and the sex industry. Bum, chicka, bum, bum. Yeah, that's right. So when it comes to sex work, the law here in New Zealand is pretty unique. Sex work in New Zealand is decriminalised for both consumers and service suppliers. That means that the old laws that criminalise sex work have been repealed, and for all intents and purposes, sex work is treated the same as any other type of business. And for that, we have the 2003 Prostitution Reform Act to thank. The ayes are 60, the noes are 59, abstention 1, the bill will be read a third time, unlock the bill. 60 yes, 59 no, and one abstention. That's as close as it's possible to get. The result of that vote is it's now 100% legal to operate a brothel, work as a sex worker, and legally, you can be a client. You can pay for sexual services. There are a few caveats. All sex must be protected. It's illegal to pay for services from anyone who's under 18. And only citizens and permanent residents are currently allowed to work in the industry. But John, uh, the most important thing is that sex workers can withdraw their consent for the services at any time. Yes, and look, that's uh, absolutely critical as a worker protection measure in the regime. And as you know, the Prostitution Reform Act was driven by and is primarily designed to protect workers in the industry as before they were operating outside the law and weren't able to access the protection. But decriminalising also came with some obligations for them, obligations under the Consumer Guarantees Act and the Fair Trading Act. But, you know, I guess the question is, given the realities of the industry, are those consumer rights that apply to every other service provider 
like your plumber, are they really fit for purpose for sex workers? Or is there an inherent tension between protecting workers and the rights of the consumer? We'll come on to that soon. But first, I want to introduce you to our cast of characters. There's John and I, obviously. And you've already met Dan, Dan the sex man. He's the client. Yes, Dan's my real name. I'm 40 years old. I was a regular client of the sex industry. I'm now married for a second time in a monogamous relationship and haven't seen a sex worker in a number of years. But I have some fond memories of my time engaging with the sex industry. Then, of course, there's Madam Mary, and she's the owner of Wellington Escort Agency Funhouse. It was something, when I look back on my life, that I was always heading to do. Um, I was born a Catholic in Eastbourne in a very loving family. The only abuse I ever suffered was having to go to church every Sunday. Um, (laughs) We lived by the beach. We had a blast as kids. Um, But I always was fascinated by Mary Magdalene and the priests and nuns saying that she was a prostitute, Mm -hmm. but she got to hang out with all the boys. And I had four older brothers and I thought, hey, it can't be all bad, whatever a prostitute is, because she gets to hang out with all the guys. (laughs) So when I was 18, a friend and I tried to apply to be sex workers and when I realised that you had to be fully naked and probably had to actually have sex I went ooh and we left um, because I hadn't really (laughs) thought it through Um, the full service side of sex work was never going to be my domain and then when I was 24 or so I tried again to get a job as a receptionist which I got but my friends were all concerned that I would end up working because no one really understood sex work back then like we do now but before we get into that I want to take you back to Dan he's sharing his first experience with a sex worker with us. So you pay in advance, FPOS at the till, at the bar, and then the lady and I went upstairs where they had like a hotel-style hallway with rooms off to the side, dark carpet, dark walls, relatively low lighting, so it feels like a kind of a private and intimate space. The lady and I went into a room and um, I was like, okay, what do we do now? And she showed me what we do now. You've probably got a pretty good idea of what happened next. If you don't, ask a friend that you trust. Now, remember, this is Dan's first time engaging with a professional. He had no idea what to expect going in, but 45 minutes later, he'd learnt a lot. It was just like... uh... Like regular sex with a regular person, except you bypass all the stuff where you meet and you figure out how much you like each other and you negotiate implicitly what the nature of your involvement is. And, you know, everyone's familiar with the human social mating dance. She told me she'd been off work for a couple of weeks and you know, hadn't gotten laid during that time. And we both enjoyed ourselves uh, pretty well. And I paid for an hour, but... We were all done in 45 minutes, and it was kind of surprising. It felt like longer. Showered together before and after. They have a shower in the room. The ladies obviously want to ensure that their clients are clean and sweet-smelling. And it actually worked out really well. Like, uh, maybe if it hadn't been such a positive first experience, I wouldn't have been so keen to you know, integrate it with my lifestyle at the time. But Dan did go on to integrate seeing sex workers into his life, at least for a couple of years, while he was in between marriages. He hasn't hired any professional services for himself for a while now, but last year he did hire a couple of guys as a present for his wife. Quite the Valentine's Day present. Yeah. 
We'll dive into his personal situation and the events that sparked that first visit very soon. But first, I think we need to find out exactly what it was that got him hooked. That would be the way she just stepped up and kissed me when we walked into the room and closed the door. It was surprisingly romantic. Now, I hasten to add that not all ladies provide kissing as a service or are keen to do so. But in this case, I think this lady and I clicked with quite a good vibe and it was um, it was really nice. I mean, it, it was surprisingly intimate and real. There was no fake porn vibe going on, which I think there might be a bit of a perception that paid sex is kind of impersonal. It was quite the opposite of that. So, Soph, I'm curious to know why Dan decided to make that first trip to Mustang, the North Auckland brothel that he visited. I understand it doesn't exist anymore. Our producer Tom has done extensive research of Auckland brothels over the um, holiday period, and, and Mustang is not on the list. Well, it was 2006, John, and his marriage had broken down. He was separated from his wife, and he didn't really feel quite ready to plunge back into the dating scene. We had two small children. She'd up and left, and... I didn't feel like I was in a good space to go out and date anyone. I didn't know what my situation was. I My relationship with my family and her family and with her and my kids was all up in the air. I didn't know whether we were going to get back together or whether we were going to formalise a divorce. It wasn't a time where I could go out and find someone and say, hey, would you like to be my girlfriend? <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't a good idea. But also, celibacy just doesn't work for me. Ultimately, Dan and his wife didn't end up getting back together. That left him with a desire to expand his horizons and try some new things. I didn't have a vast amount of experience at all outside of me and my wife. And then when we broke up, I was like, I want to do something about this. Engaging with sex workers gave me the opportunity to go find out what it was like with different people. I think that was actually really valuable for me. The phase of my life lasted about a year or so. And after that, I just went back, went out into the dating world and but it was really valuable in that transition for me of being kind of sheltered, only really ever having had the one serious partner, wondering what it was like with other people, and then being able to get my head around that and be led through it without without the fear of rejection, actually. And the nerves you get before you see a sex worker, that they exist. But I'll tell you what, the total amount of nerves, I think, is less than the tension involved in finding someone to date in the dating market and going through all of that. Like, it is a lot easier when you pay a professional to engage with you that way. So, John, we're talking about all these other people's sex lives and the lives of sex workers. Have you had any formative sexual consumption experiences? I I find that expression a little odd, to be honest, sexual (laughs) consumption. I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a tight ass to, to pay for anything. Um, but not 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 oodles. I think going to a strip club, I guess you're paying for an experience that's kind of mm. sexual in nature. Not that I have done that very often and certainly not in recent times. But um, Emily, it's okay. The odd stag do here and there or a rugby trip or something like that. So no, nothing. Um, I feel a bit lame. <laughs> um, I don't have any um, super crazy stories to tell. Although I do, thinking back on my youth, I lived in Berlin for a long time. 
and the and whole attitude to open. yeah yeah that's yeah. right Germans are Germans are completely different to Kiwis in mm. terms of their attitude to sex and the whole concept of sex work is is much more out in the open than it was at least the same time in New Zealand so it was, that mm. was certainly quite eye opening for a young man. Um, <laughs> And I thought I'd seen it all and then, then went to Amsterdam um, on, a, on, a, on a kind of weekend trip. And it really was, saw it uh, all. Yeah, really took it up a notch. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the extent of what I'm comfortable sharing on this podcast. I mean, that's kind of interesting though, right, John? Like, there, it makes us both feel a little bit like, oh, you know, like, it's a bit close to home, but not share too much. And I guess that's probably because there still is a stigma around sex work, right? And people, or sex workers, should I say, are... Uh, stigmatized for what they do in the service that they provide even though it is perfectly legal there's definitely still stigma around sex work the fact that we have to pay more insurance the fact that a lot of people won't deal with us a lot of businesses won't allow us to use their services we have to pay more for the use of visa and mastercard remember madam mary she's the owner of wellington's fun house and that's a business she describes as the city's most expensive brothel but it doesn't really work the same way as the brothel that Dan described. It's it's more like an agency, so you need to call up and book in advance. And if they aren't booked, there's no one there. You can't just turn up and, and kind of browse the services. Now, when Madam Mary talks about insurance, she doesn't mean just a tiny bit more. Although she's never made a claim, Mary estimates that it costs her 40% more than other businesses. That's huge. Despite a long and claim-free history, her insurance company recently decided to drop her as a client just because she works in the sex industry. And it's not just insurance that she has to struggle with. Like I tried to get some carpet relayed Mm -hmm. last year and I rung about five people, numbers I was given, and sort of drilled down to this one guy who actually did that particular thing with carpet, like taking it up from one place because it wasn't such good, it was about a year old, and laying it somewhere else. And then I told him, I said, it would need to be, you know, either within these hours or whatever. And he said, why? And I said, we're um, high-end brothel. And he said, I'll call you back. And I thought, oh, here we go. And like an hour later, he called me back and he said, I can't come into your building. He might have a sex addiction. His wife might not like it. Or he may have a religious reason why he doesn't want to do it. But it's not certainly not the first time that wow. that has happened. So stigma definitely is huge. Yeah. It is a lot better now. Like the generation of women that work for me are having a huge impact on stigma because most of them are very open about being sex workers. Again, because we're in such a privileged bubble, if people do find out where they work, they're like, well, I'd work there too, you know. So that helps. But also just in general, a lot of agencies, girls now are a lot more open about being sex workers, which means their friends can see that they're not being damaged, they're not being hurt, they're not being beaten up, raped, all the things that people imagine mm. would happen to a sex worker. Um, so that's helping. Like people, most people you meet now go, I've got three friends who are sex workers. <laughs> or I came to you because two of my flatmates were sex workers. And they're open about it. A lot of people's parents know now. Yeah. Um, it, and that is helping because yeah. 25 years ago, people didn't want to tell anybody. No. Yeah. So, you know, and that's a combination of just of the decriminalisation because a lot of women grow up not or knowing that sex work is decriminalised and not thinking that it should be any other way and then finding out that it hasn't always been like that and also that internationally it's really dangerous and illegal and then going, why? (laughs) When they work in the industry, they're like, why why could this be illegal? It's just ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, so stigma is definitely still alive and well. 
The Prostitution Reform Act was passed in 2003. It's 18 years ago. There's an entire generation of us who've grown up never knowing sex work was anything other than decriminalised. Madam Mary's view is that, coupled with a more open attitude, will help to further normalise our perception of the industry. And I think that makes sense. You know, the chances are high that you know someone who is or has been a sex worker or a client of one. Yeah. For perspective, it's estimated that there are more sex workers in New Zealand than dentists. And it's not just Dan hiring them all. And what about Dan? Well, his views echo that of Madam Mary, that the more open we are and the more destigmatized the industry becomes, the better it'll be. Not just for workers, but for clients as well. And I think our social attitude toward that should evolve toward acceptance and seeing it as a positive thing. So uh, I don't I don't really see a need to, to hide. I mean, I talk openly to my friends about it if we're talking on the topic. And I encourage my friends, if they're in a position in their life where it makes sense to them, that they should try seeing a sex worker. You know, it's not something to be ashamed of. Generally, they giggle and blush. <laughs> I'm just chipping away trying to make a small difference one conversation at a time here. So Dan's putting in the work, he's having the conversations with his mates, talking about his experiences with sex work. They're listening, but they're not really contributing. It's still a one-way conversation. They're not coming back to Dan and saying, yeah, took your advice and went to see a sex worker. I think it's more likely they're just not sharing because someone's keeping these business going. You know, The industry does have clients and I'm pretty sure um, they walk amongst us. We don't all have to be going around you know, wearing our sex lives on our sleeves all the time. It's not a conversation that you necessarily have to have all the time, but also in a context where you would normally talk to someone about intimate relationships you know, with a close friend, I think removing the stigma from sex work can open people up to solutions. It made my life better. It helped me move forward. Remember... Dan credits the sex industry with playing a huge role in his personal development. And if it wasn't for someone else having an open and honest conversation with him, well, he might never have made that first trip to Mustangs. I had an older friend, he was about 20 years older than me at the time that I worked with, who was probably my only friend who was open about the fact that he had been a client of the sex industry before. He was married with children, this was all in his past, but he actually positively encouraged me about it and was accepting and open and made me feel like I could chat about it and it was just a regular normal thing that I could be comfortable with. And He did me a valuable service with those conversations. I guess it would be possible to think of clients of the sex industry as somehow bad people. They're either losers because they can't get laid without paying for it or they're bad people because their libido is overcoming them and they just uh, sex is still a little bit demonized in the minds of some people the reason that dan can feel so comfortable to use his real name and talk so openly goes back to the 2003 prostitution reform act and the decriminalization that goes along with it yeah, that's right so there, there are two main models of decriminalization the type that we've got here in in new zealand where it's legal for the buyer and seller, and what's called the Swedish model. The key difference with the Swedish model is that the sex is only decriminalised for the worker. 
that means it's still an offence for the client, the brothel keeper, the security on the door, or anyone else involved in the transaction. Under the Swedish model, by talking to us like this, Dan and Madam Mary would both be admitting to crimes. I mean, I think it's probably important to ask ourselves, does that really make sense? Sounds ludicrous to me. Yeah. You can have a service that's legal, so you can hire a plumber, but the well, the plumber can perform plumbing services, but you cannot hire them. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And think of the stigma that would attach to plumbing services. Of course, Dan only got involved in the industry in 2006, which was post-decriminalisation. But Madam Mary, well, she's seen the changes play out firsthand. So the biggest change that came with decriminalisation was that I could legal well anyone in the sex industry could legally talk to a potential sex worker about using condoms. Wow. We could legally provide condoms. For years before decriminalization in New Zealand, certainly in Wellington, it was pretty loose. The police weren't going around arresting people, but there was always the risk that they could. Mm. There was a bit of a change of police a couple of years into my work in the industry and we had a bit of a panic because we used to provide condoms in the rooms and then I came up with the idea of putting vending machines in the lounge which had Coca-Cola chippies condoms (laughs) you know Um, so if someone bought condoms then it was obviously for their own private use after work so we could never you know that kind of got us through the legal thing Mm -hmm. but we never got hunted down for that anyway but and the police the change of police that we were dreading actually worked out to be fine in the end so they just really want to keep people safe the police are pretty good generally yeah especially these days but you know so decriminalization gives the legal support for that so if something does happen at work you can go straight to the police and the police are required to support you just the same as they would if you were working in any other industry. Yeah. So that's great. The decriminalisation has been huge. A lot of younger sex workers think that the decriminalisation's done nothing, but they weren't around before it. <laughs> they also weren't around before the internet. But, you know, if they, and a lot of younger sex workers also don't understand that in most countries around the world it's highly illegal and highly dangerous still, which is ridiculous. You know, we have got a world-leading model of decriminalisation, and it's incredible if you compare us with other countries, how safe sex workers are in New Zealand, comparatively speaking. It's not easy to quantitatively compare the safety of sex workers with other countries because there are so many variables and different ways of collecting data. There has, however, been some research within New Zealand, which backs up what Madam Mary is saying. In 2007, the University of Otago found that post-decriminalisation two-thirds of sex workers felt it was easier to decline unwanted or bad clients, and the majority said they were more likely to report incidents to the police. And more than that, 96% stated that the law change made them feel safer. So that's really good, and it's echoed by a 2008 report from the Prostitution Law Committee, which concluded the reforms had a marked effect in improving the rights and safety of workers. You can find links to both of those reports in the show notes. And for exactly this reason, the Prostitution Reform Act was driven by workers for workers. But what about the consumer? Does Dan see any benefits? The primary benefit, I think, for me is not having to navigate the web of euphemisms that is 
ubiquitous to the sex industry in places where it's not legalized. So as a consumer, you get the benefit of a straightforward advertisement saying, we are a brothel, these are the sexual services that we provide at these rates, instead of a bunch of euphemisms that you have to kind of understand and work through without being able to ask openly about them. So there's a, there's a lot of benefit to a client because you get those meaningful, straightforward advertisements and descriptions of services, and you can go in and say, I want to do X, Y, Z, and they won't be afraid that you're a cop on a sting operation. As we talked about at the start of this episode, there is another element to this. Sex workers and brothels now have obligations under the Consumer Guarantees Act, just like any other business. In practice, this means all services must be carried out with reasonable skill and care. They also need to be suitable for a particular purpose if you've told the seller about it. And when that isn't the case, then there are rules in place to protect you. Yeah, so in theory, you can you can take them to the disputes tribunal. And this has happened, although for the most part, the law remains untested. But Dan, he has a more general point about this. Kiwis don't complain. The primary benefit to clients comes more from that ability to openly advertise than it comes from the ability to raise issues uh, with the service quality under the Consumer Guarantees Act, etc. Maybe some people would raise those issues. I've never done so myself. Culturally, we're not really a society that likes to complain loudly about things. New Zealand isn't the USA. I like this element of our culture where we just... We don't make a fuss. I like not making a fuss. I like not having to wade through social anxiety over an issue, you know, just being able to just walk away. So whilst those consumer protections are available, I don't think we really have a culture that relies heavily on exercising them. And and I like that. and, And I hope it stays that way. So Dan just mentioned something interesting here. Advertising. For the most part, that's restricted to online and some print publications. But it is important and provides a significant consumer benefit that we're going to discuss more very soon. As well as our national reluctance to complain, there's another reason that Dan never has. The sex workers he's interacted with, just too good. They're all professional and highly skilled. But There is one experience where, in retrospect, he thinks maybe he could have exerted his consumer rights and asked for a refund. I do remember one um, session with a provider at a brothel that would probably fall under that heading, and it was one with a South American lady who didn't really speak any English. It's a good example of why it's a bit fraught to hire a provider who you can't communicate with. Talking to Dan, he's very clear that for him, hiring a sex worker isn't just about the physical acts. And I guess, why would it be? It's not the 1950s, and you can log on to your computer and explore a whole wide world of pornography. And you can order sex toys online. If you really just wanted a physical release, you could just stay home and sort yourself out. So... Why would you go visit a sex worker? Well, for Dan, it's uh, about sharing a connection with someone. You know, some providers you'll hit it off with, some providers you won't click with. It's just like anybody, really. And this particular lady, I didn't hit it off with at all. She was incredibly tense and unhappy. I got the impression she didn't really want to be there with me. And the whole encounter was just crazy awkward and 
overall not a positive time. I had paid up front, which is, you know, standard practice, and I just left and didn't come back after our hour. My reaction to the unsatisfactory encounter was more along the lines of sympathy for my provider and a feeling of awkwardness and not really wanting to be there than feeling like I had been let down commercially and should complain about it. Maybe other clients would feel differently, I don't know, but I think the fact that you are purchasing an attempt at intimacy makes it a little different from buying a watch at the shop that needs to keep good time. The attempt at intimacy will not always perfectly succeed. It's kind of incumbent on us as clients to be understanding about that. You know, Don't be demanding. If you try another provider, eventually you'll find one you click with. There's an element of risk, and I think it makes us better people if we, as a client, accept a certain amount of that risk when we hand over our money. I guess if a provider walked out the door and, and pulled you the finger, you'd ask your money back. But that's never happened to me. Every provider I've ever been with has been obviously making a genuine and honest attempt to look after my needs, to give me a positive time. And I'm not inclined to push back when they fail because not everybody can connect with everybody else. That's just how it is with humans. In a way, Dan's take is not too dissimilar from going to see a film. You make a choice and you pay your money and it's all in the hopes of being entertained. If you don't enjoy it, well, maybe it wasn't for you. It's pretty subjective because there's guaranteed to be other people who loved it. That's a really good analogy. And yeah, obviously, if someone saw a film and decided they didn't like the film, they'd be an asshole if they went and yelled at the theatre wanting their money back. It's not how it works. And I think you're not going to find a, a sex worker who's going to have a genuinely negative and unpleasant attitude. They all seem to care about their job. I mean, it's their job. They're professionals. They're getting paid a fairly high rate for it. They want to deliver value for that. What you're buying is an opportunity to make an attempt to form a connection. And how that goes is going to be entirely up to the unique chemistry of those two individuals. When Dan says fairly high rate, he'd expect to pay around $350 for an hour. Yeah, that sort of puts him in the mid-range. It's less than what you'd pay at Madame Mary's Funhouse and more than you'd pay in some lower-cost establishments. But the thing that really jumped out at me there is, is the idea of a sex worker and a client having chemistry. My first thought at this was, well, this is a sign that Dan's seen really good sex workers, proper professionals who've done a great job of selling him a fantasy. Yeah, and I agreed. And when I put it to Madame Mary, I thought she'd be like, yeah, that's just part of the job to make clients feel like that. But actually, sex workers do have chemistry with a lot of clients and they do have a, a certain level of relaxation or whatever with clients. And there's General some clients rapport. that, yeah, that's, yeah, that just doesn't happen with some clients. So they mm. think, you know, he won't book me again, but then sometimes those clients do. So, but from the other, other side of it, from the client's side of it, if he doesn't feel that the lady was the right lady for him, mm. it's a really tricky thing. You can't refund money for a service like that, mm. that that has been provided when there's no specific thing that you can point out that was wrong. It's also, it's rude and, you know, it's, it's basically about doing your research and 
going with a brand you can trust. There's a lot of clients on forums that complain about going to agencies where they do what is called bait and switch, which is where they will photograph, sometimes they steal photos off the internet, but um, they'll have a photograph of a you know 22-year-old, stunning, slim, leggy, busty girl, and then the client turns up and it's a 40-year-old, not quite so slim, not quite so busty, not quite so leggy, and they'll go to the same agency five or six times and have that happen to them, but they keep going back. <laughs> it's like, what are you going to do? You know, you can't, it's it's your own fault. You know, so re- so there's so many different sides to it. There's, you need to do your research. You need to follow trusted brands. If you take mm. a punt, as it's called, and it doesn't work out, mm. then it's just a lesson to be learned. Don't necessarily go back and see that sex worker again or don't see someone who advertises like her or don't see someone, you know, it, it is a you have to be careful about who you're booking. If you're spending a lot of money, and depending on what your budget is, it might you might feel ripped off at $150, and you might feel ripped off at 600 Remember earlier when I said we were going to come back to advertising? Well, that time is now. One of the primary benefits for a client and an operator is the ability to legally advertise and build a brand. Brands and reputations play a huge role in our modern consumption habits, If I want to go buy some new underwear and I go to Thunderpants, I know what I'm going to get. Brands help us navigate the available options and work out which are the best for us. And when you've built a strong brand, you're also going to put a lot of effort into maintaining it. In the sex industry, it's no different. If a brand doesn't deliver, you're going to avoid it. That is interesting, Soph. So, you know, in Madam Mary's case, how does she protect her brand? If you go to Funhouse and you're bitterly disappointed because you don't think the service was carried out with reasonable care and skill, do you think she'd give you a refund under the Consumer Guarantees Act? It's a really tricky thing. You can't... The woman may have put in everything she had to that booking, and it just opens up a terrible door for clients who are just out to get free bookings. Yeah. Who, who could say, oh, well, I didn't have a good time, so I want my, my money back. She didn't make me come twice, so I want my money back. <laughs> you know, she wasn't exactly as she was advertised. She had two more tattoos than it says on the site. She was slightly smaller than she said on the site. She was slightly more busty than it said on the site. She was, they could pick anything, you know, mm. not, you know, she was a year older. She told me she was 25. It says 24 on the site, you know, things like that. They, mm. they could use anything to try and get money back, and that's, that's abuse. Mm. <laughs> not consumer rights, that's abuse. Yeah. In my eyes. So, John, we started out with a question. When it comes to the sex industry, are consumer rights compatible with workers' rights? Or, given the nature of sex work, is there an inherent tension between them? So... Are you more likely to use a sex worker after this episode, John? I don't think I'm more likely. <laughs> uh, it was a it was a very low likelihood to start with, but <laughs> I do feel more enlightened and I, uh, I I am more interested by the industry <laughs> than I was before. But it doesn't necessarily convert to acquiring the services. So, do you think there is a tension there between consumer rights and the sex workers' rights? Do you think the Consumer Guarantees Act naturally fits? with a sex work industry? I think the point around brand was really interesting because if you've got a brand to protect, you're more likely to adhere to consumer protections and 
do the right thing by your customers. Mm. Equally, if you're running um, a brothel and you've got workers to protect, you need to be able to attract good workers. And if you get a reputation for someone who's constantly refunding any consumer who makes any frivolous complaint Mm. about services, you're not going to get good workers. So there's a really interesting balance to be struck there, but it's all constructed around maintaining the strength of the brand both for, for, for clients and for workers. Mm. I suppose that's probably true for most workplaces, right? Like you, yeah. you build up a reputation as a good employer or not a good employer, and so you attract good people who might sell your product well, who then in turn attract good clients um, who use your services. Yeah, that's right. You want workers who are invested in your business. Mm. I think I've developed the appreciation for the users of (laughs) sex work services more than I had before. And I really like Dan's point around how he thought he'd go and see a sex worker instead of, you know, say going out and going on the town or finding someone on Tinder or something like that. And I, I really respect him for that, for not being a sex pest to some poor person who was actually interested in finding a relationship when that clearly wasn't what he was looking for. So yeah, it shows a lot of self-awareness, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that was that was really re- admirable. So, John, what do you reckon about Mary's point on the old bait and switch with the older and younger woman? Yeah, it's an interesting question because in any other industry, you'd say, well, that's bait advertising and it's a breach of the Fair Trading Act. But, mm-hmm. you know, it makes me wonder is there still a historic perception of this industry that actually you're doing something that's a little bit under the table, therefore you can get away with um, being uh, misleading at the edges Mm -hmm. and people just put up with it. They shouldn't, and this is a trade just like any other, so they could make a complaint to the Commerce Commission that that, um, (laughs) the services they were provided were falsely advertised to them. Mm. Whether people would or not is another question. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consume This. If you've been enjoying the podcast, then please tell a friend. Yes, that's right, I'm talking to you. Please get your phone out of your pocket and send a text. We're easy to find. Just recommend they search Consume This on any podcast app. Also, our thanks go out to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. There's Dan, Madam Mary, Mercedes, the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, and everyone else who wished to remain off the record. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. We're a not-for-profit organisation supported by our members. For more information about the benefits of membership, check out the Consumer NZ website. The link's in the show notes. For more information on the Prostitution Reform Act, check out the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective's website. That link's also in the show notes. This episode was produced by Tom Rist-Smith and hosted by us, John Duffy, and Sophie Richardson. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with the final episode of the series. And in that one, we'll be looking at the rise of the sharing economy. See ya! Matiwa! Hello, I'm Abby Darman, and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we are working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. 
To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.